Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jude Klassen, an actor and filmmaker whose first movie, Love in the Sixth, was a sort of experimental musical about people hoping to find happiness in the midst of a truly terrible time for the planet. Her new film, Stupid For You, lands on VOD platforms today after playing the Inside Out Festival earlier this spring. It's a charming queer musical starring Mikhail Klassen Clay as Kat, a teenager who decides to reunite her mother's old punk band in order to impress a girl. It's an act that sparks all sorts of unexpected chaos for Kat, for Kat's mom, and pretty much everybody they know. Jude picked John Waters' Hairspray, the frenzied comedy about 60s TV dance parties and the civil rights movement that gave the legendary underground filmmaker his first pop hit in 1988, introducing the world to Ricky Lake as Baltimore idealist Tracy Turnblad and mainstream audiences to Waters' longtime collaborator Divine as Tracy's mother Edna. He also cast Sonny Bono and Debbie Harry as the scheming Von Tussles, whose plans to keep the city segregated run directly against Tracy's ambition to let black and white kids dance together on the Corny Collins show. It's also all about unexpected chaos. But three and a half decades later, the movie celebrates a certain teenage exuberance that lines up really well with what Jude's doing in her picture. Kids will be kids, I guess. This is someone else's movie. Well, as you were mentioning, uh, there are some really striking parallels. Uh, <laughs> they're both musicals. I have, uh, I mean, definitely the 1988 version. To be honest, I haven't watched the uh, recreation. I mean, it's not John Waters, so mm. and it's not Divine. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Um, but yeah, well, we have so much in common with this film, including a location, weirdly enough. Uh, Gail's Snack Shack on um, Eastern Avenue. Mm -hmm. It's uh, where the Hardy Har joke shop is. And then Tracy and and her mom uh, live above it. So we shot some of the, um, you know, the the pop-up video sequence in Stupid For You. Yeah. Where where we're all in the cafe eating fries. That's that's Gail's Snack Shack. And they let us shoot there for, you know, as long as we bought, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich and some fries. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> I'm glad to see productions sort of accommodating multi micro budget ideas. You know, like we can't, we can't rent your location, but we'd like to be here anyway. I'm seeing a lot of that lately and it's kind of sweet. Yeah. It's the only way to make uh, a low budget or micro budget movie. Uh, if you can beg, borrow and steal locations. Yeah. A couple. <laughs> we borrowed a few. My house, of course, was in both my movies, like every single room. <laughs> sure. um, but back to Hairspray and the parallels. Uh, I really feel uh, a connection to John Waters and the way he works. Um, and just that he kind of initially was making, he and Divine were high school buddies. And they he made his trash trilogy with Divine, and um, I made my first film basically with Love and the Six with all of my friends. It was sort of like starring whoever showed up. Yeah, but <laughs> just that you can you can see that your most of your friends can when you're when you're in the arts, like you you have a lot of talented compelling people around you right so uh, having access to working with with friends who you can just see something in 
I think John Waters, that's how he started. And oh, yeah. He kind of wore every single hat. He was editor. He was cinematographer. And, um, I'm not, I don't do all of those things, but I do wear a lot of hats. <laughs> and the Butler brothers wear the other hats. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, those guys have been like, DIYing it from the start. Yes. Yeah. I actually met Brett when he was working at uh, Starbucks. And I interviewed him about their, or both of them, about their first film, uh, Confusions of a Married Couple, I think it was called. Um, anyway, it was many years ago, uh, probably 2008 or nine. Yeah, I think um, I saw their next one after that, maybe. But um, it's been, it's it's kind of amazing how, people do come up with their own sort of cohort and then refuse to stop gathering people. I mean, Waters does that uh, with every film. He brings on some new eccentricity or some behind right. the scenes talent or somebody who just sort of wandered around in front of his camera. You know, his, <laughs> he's spoken of his obsession with getting Pia Zadora for, uh, oh, for yeah, Hairspray. The yeah. yeah, but then he brings along or she brings along Rick Ocasek, which is just, you can point to that now and say, no, that, that guy was the front man of one of the biggest bands of the eighties. You just, <laughs> you just don't kind of believe it when you see it because he's this frantic, weird, he was so composed. I saw the cars live and their whole thing yeah. was that they didn't move. Like they didn't <laughs> perform. They just played the music and sang the songs. They wouldn't right. move on stage. And then to watch him just flailing around and putting his head through paint and all the little physical bits he's doing in the background. It's just, I, I mean, I, I know, I know the direction was basically just have fun with it, but he really <laughs> took it to heart. <laughs> All of that stillness, he's just like breaking out of it in that one scene. Yeah, he was so funny as, I mean, it's so over the top, but it's like, this is a beatnik and this is a beatnik artist, like ah, throwing things at the canvas. I mean, I just, I, I sort of, it's almost like um, he's Andy Warhol with a narrative or something. You know, just yeah, like, yeah. Just and so pushing it, like let's see where this goes. Like I, I'm wondering about the the scripting. I, I feel like, I mean, I don't know this because I did not research this part, but I, I have the feeling it was more like a Christopher Guest film where it's like we need to get from A to B, and you know, just just go for it, and because that's when all that sparkly, crazy dialogue comes out, like you know, yeah. ironing. <laughs> I could sort of see that, but at the same time, like the dialogue he does, he, the dialogue Waters favors is so specific in its cadence. Yeah. You know, they're there. It's almost pure expository conversation yeah. where people are just saying, we have to do this. We have to do that. And mm -hmm. when it's different, when it is just people ranting and being silly, it, it's noticeably wilder. It just, the energy changes. And and I I love the fact that it was like his eighth feature. It's certainly the first one that ever got a PG, the only one that ever got a PG rating, which is yeah. adorable. <laughs> but he never really changed his his specific writing style. Like the, the, yeah. the characters in his films speak in a way that no one else ever speaks. People don't speak that way. And movie characters don't speak that way, but there is just this remarkable directness of everything. It goes all the way back to his earliest films. Mm -hmm. um, 
so they are scripted, but they're also extremely loose. Right. Oh, Ma, you're so 50s. And, um, (laughs) you know, our souls are black, though our skin is white. Yes. Obviously, those are like little crafted moments. But I I guess I was more referencing the, um, like the Piazzadora. Sure. um, Oh, yeah. No, those scenes are all over the place. Those scenes just feel like. (laughs) <laughs> they're kind very 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 loose yeah well and so for something that is so like all the dance sequences have to be so closely choreographed oh yeah but the energy is always really lively and and i think part of that is just that ricky lake is this life force that cannot be contained like i had forgotten just how much fun it is to just watch tracy turnblad Oh, and bounce God. around and 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 just to occupy the space and and she's so I mean she's incredibly good on her feet yes but it's not just the dancing it's the physicality it's the joy that she brings to it it's like watching Gene Kelly weirdly enough you know like he always right. made sure to smile on camera so people could see how much fun he was having <laughs> yeah she has this incredible earnest lovable energy and um I just love that she just out of the gate she's a she's a winner like she gets the guy she's the favorite you know and and the amber von tussle yes. <laughs> yeah they're amazing the yes. amber von tussle character is so she's so brittle and in you do feel a little bit of empathy for her at time when when debbie harry is you know making her you know do the pony yeah, when you, see, when you see where she comes from, you, she's yeah. much more sympathetic, but she still chooses to be a horrible person, which is yeah. you know, like, a, that's a John Waters villain. He has he has so much affinity for all the, the freaks and the and the misfits and the factory seconds and people who don't feel like they belong. Yes. And all of his movies are about forcing yourself to belong to something, either by joining a community the way the way Tracy does or yeah. by building a cult around you which also is something that happens with Tracy like he has it all the way here he manages to do everything that's that's crucial and, and essential to his cinema um mm-hmm. but in the in the guise of a progressive 1960s musical <laughs> made in 1988 it's it's really quite something yeah it's it's almost like he was parroting parroting the um the 1960s you know social conscious movement oh yeah because of those moments of you know golly you know i just <laughs> tracy is so um just so like weirdly wholesome and uh i read that he actually saw himself as tracy turnblad that was that. him at 16 um, his, he was hanging out with the with the black kids in Baltimore, and in that time, they were like being told by police officers, "This ain't Greenwich Village, you know, yeah. break it up." And um, yeah, so it's almost like he's, you know, he created this character with with so much tenderness, really, you know, for him. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean he's. He, he tends to be on the side of the underdog, the underdogs, but, but yeah, he identifies with every type of underdog. I mean, there's a little bit of him in the beatnik scene, right? Because those people are living their best lives. They're just really, really annoying about it. <laughs> um, but 
I think he sympathizes with Tracy's parents, even though they're, you know, exaggerations of, of, they're both completely supportive of Tracy. That's the thing that's like Jerry Stiller being supportive looks like Jerry Stiller being awful because he's just this, this shouty gargoyle man, but he's always coming from a place of love, which is so sweet in, in this film. And, and the relationship he has on screen with divine is very stable and loving and, and Edna is constantly caring for him as he spirals into another rage and Edna has <laughs> things he's she's upset about as well. Edna is plenty upset about all kinds of things. But once they both see Tracy being happy on TV, that's fine. I mean, with Edna, it's also, I'm sure, um, you know, it's it's the commercial side of it. She wants to be her manager. Yes. But they're encouraging their daughter. And then when integration comes up, they're fine with that, too. Yeah. I mean, it's funny initially. Um... Edna is more, I mean, she's not totally supportive and until that moment where she sees, sees her on TV and it's just like, oh, oh, I get it. I mean, it's a pretty quick flip, but mm-hmm. you know, with that, that initial scene where the racist neighbor comes in, it's like, you know, watching that. I, I f- it feels so wrong, like just quoting the film. Because I know, yeah. <laughs> I, I was really happy talking about it. <laughs> no, it, I mean it's part of the texture of it, right? I mean, and Waters, to his credit, in 1988, when it could have happened, the N word never shows up. Like it's not mm. that kind of movie. He's not ever yeah. about hate. He's about no. misconnections and and people who don't understand each other. So the word Negro gets thrown around a lot. I was actually surprised to hear the R word a lot more often. Uh, and delivered by people like Tracy, who, as we see, just don't know any better and yeah. and learn and change. And it's like he's holding out the possibility of growth for everybody, which I thought was really lovely. And it's the Von Tussles yeah. who, even given the opportunity multiple times to just be better, <laughs> they have to refuse because they're the villains. But Debbie Harry and Sonny Bono make it fun to watch. You, they oh, sort God. Of, you enjoy their failings. <laughs> What an amazing combination of um, 80s stars. Yeah, it's so weird watching it and realizing Videodrome is just like six years earlier when Deborah Harry is is framed as the hottest, edgiest, sexiest menace. (laughs) And now here she is playing... Uh, like you know Mrs. Von Tussle <laughs> yeah white white bread Marie Antoinette by the end of it when they actually go for the hair it's just oh the hair oh my god the bomb and the hair was so fantastic yeah and this is Joan Waters saying oh yeah we can do that we don't need a lot of money I know somebody like he's just pulling <laughs> things somebody. out of the ether and <laughs> and making it all real and the and the little bits here and there too where he tells us the audience that it's okay to laugh at these awful people by having divine play the station manager as well, or the station owner yeah. as well right like it sort of defuses the racism like it's not really serious and we know the good guys are going to win yeah um interesting uh fact so it, he based it on the uh it was called the bobby dean show and they actually closed down like he gave it a happy ending but in in real life um they wouldn't integrate and i guess the the white kids invaded what they called Negro day. Um, And then they, and then the show got shut down. Um, So in real life, it's very, yeah, tragic. And um, he turned it into a victory in the movie, which is, which is fantastic. Um, That does feel like him, you know, giving, creating a happy ending for, 
something terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Hairspray had to have a, it had to have a happy ending. It was just like a pure joy ride, you know? Yeah. It's triumphant. Even the idea that Tracy, this thing fascinates me. The whole thing about roaches in Tracy's hair, you Mm -hmm. know, it was a deleted scene. There was a, a moment where there's a roach in her, in her hair and Amber's not lying. She's just making it worse. Oh, uh, when I didn't she know says, that detail. Yeah, uh, there are a couple of scenes that were cut. There's one where she gets her hair dyed because it changes color from one scene to the next. I mean, it's yeah. fine. Enough time passes in the film that it's fine. She yeah. Somewhere she dyed her hair. She's here now. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a scene where where Amber sees a roach in Tracy's hair. And so all the dialogue she has is actually rooted oh. in truth. It just feels like, yeah, it just feels like she's sniping at her and no one will believe her. So she's kind of being gaslit by the film now. Um, <laughs> but what's great about yeah. it is that it still becomes the triumph of the movie that Tracy turns even that into, like she comes out with a roach dress, she invents a new dance. Everybody's fine with it because it's like, that's, I think that's John Waters' heart, right? Like nothing is so terrible that you can't recover from it. Nothing is so bad that it will destroy you forever. Right. And, and he just has this cinema of hope going through all of his movies, even the most grotesque and awful of his characters are still happy. And we, we talk, I got to interview him once and, and we talked about it briefly. Oh, it was just a phoner. I've never actually sat down with him. Someday I will. Okay. Uh, I will find a way to celebrate this man. Yeah. But, but he was saying like, he's just like, he's he, the only people he doesn't like are people who don't like him. And <laughs> Even then, he tries to win them over rather than just ghost them or disconnect from them completely and not engage with them. He's he has such a pure heart for a guy who makes such weird and and like gleefully filthy movies. Yes, gleefully filthy is a good way to describe it. That's his thing. Um, yeah. And watching him bring all that energy to bear in Hairspray, but still somehow make it something that families could watch and take away moral lessons. I mean, he's got, this film has a subplot about conversion therapy not working, which is, it's 1988. This is 34 yeah. years ago. And he so got So ahead that. of his time. Yeah. Oh my and God. of course, once again, he plays the guy. So we know not to give it even a shred of credibility. Right. Uh, he just shows up with this ridiculous hand crank spiral and starts poking. Poor, <sighs> oh, it's it, poor Penny. I mean, poor Penny. That young woman suffers mightily to, to win the love of her man. I love that that's his, uh, the, the John Waters cameo is like so insane. It's like, not like Hitchcock, just like just <laughs> walk through the scene. <laughs> I'm going to be at the bus stop. It's like, he's got that spiral and he's brought the electric prod. Yep. yep. Oh my God. So brilliant. It's yeah. a great Halloween costume too. Now that I think <laughs> about it, that's like the future there. Yes. And I love that all the, that those 1960 dance crazes, they were all real. Like, I know. <laughs> the bug. <laughs> I think we need to bring that one back. I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah. Put it- Even the way people welcome each other into the dance by throwing bugs at their, at the people around them. Yeah. Is- yeah. Passing the bug. Um, there was a dance that was cut. Um, that was a real dance. It was called the stupidity Oh, it's when you act mentally ill, dance. it's like they even knew to cut that in 1988. <laughs> He's a very sensitive man. <laughs> he is a very sensitive fellow.
Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to tell you about the new Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. This week, I wrote about Aubrey Plaza giving the performance of her career in Emily the Criminal, and I discussed the new 4K editions of God Told Me To and Event Horizon, because it's been that kind of week. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. It's me. I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. So here's the awkward question. When did you first see Hairspray? When did you encounter it? Oh, I, I, what? I don't remember. I was trying to remember what theater I saw it in, but it would have been in Vancouver. Um, because that's where I spent the first part of my life. <laughs> um, so I would have gone with my friends. I was uh, always dating a musician. So I think, you know, we went to Hairspray because musical. And right. Amazing. I just remember being blown away and just obsessed with it and going more than once probably at the varsity theater i'm thinking but um i just re-watched it recently because well after we shot at uh gail snack shack <clears throat> i started thinking about hairspray a lot and some of the people who saw stupid for you were mentioning oh it it really reminded me of a john waters film it sort of reminded me of hairspray and i was like Oh yeah. Yeah. And so when you proposed the someone else's movie, I was trying to think of what movies paralleled my movie. Um, and uh, so I watched it again and, and I really felt it, it really held up. And um, there were so many things that I had obviously forgotten because, you know, I saw, did see it when it first came out in the sure. theater. So it's been, it's been that long. So, um, yeah. Well, cause the, the parallels are very strong. I mean, just the energy the kids have in stupid for you made me think of hairspray and the way that it's kind of evenly split. Well, not evenly split, but it's like 60, 40 between the kids and the parents and that there's right. all these interacting and, and overlapping ideas, if not scenes, they're, those stories are fairly separate, but it all yeah. comes together and it's all it's all stitched together with the the themes of the film. That's yeah, it's his That's thing in a way, right? Like his expansive world where there is one story and it's the most important story, but there's all these other things that are given some weight and yes. nobody is just a one dimensional walk on. Yeah, that's that's so true. The the parents were fully realized in a lot of uh, teen films. I, I, I love John Hughes, but usually the parents are just, they just have a little, like they exist to good luck tonight, honey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're there to but, complicate or enable, but yeah, exactly. They're, they're a device. Um, when I initially wrote uh, stupid for you, I had the, it was equally weighted between Dan, the Danny character, the mom and the daughter. Oh, yeah. um, but then when I started to like actually write the script and get feedback from the brothers, uh, it was just like, this is, 
this is a cat story. I mean, it's much, it's much more interesting to focus on the, on the teenage dynamic and make that the, the A story and Danny, the B story, but I still wanted a really rich world, um, which I, you know, getting back to John Waters and Hairspray, I feel like he really did develop even, you know, like the Sonny and Debbie, <laughs> forgetting, their, forgetting their names. Oh, the Von Tussles. Tussles, yeah. <laughs> His names are so great. Uh, they, I mean, they were, they were pure villain. It's not like they had, you know, a lot of levels, <laughs> but, you know, they were deep individuals, but they were full characters you know they were just like oh was Debbie Harry in that film I don't remember her like you fully remember her oh yeah you won't forget her if, if only for popping that zit that was <laughs> that was so John Waters like the, to do the the gross out thing yeah. um, he just that that was the moment I had the um you know the captioning on when I was watching it <laughs> <laughs> when Debbie Harry is popping um, Amber's pimple, it actually said splash. <laughs> like, <"Whoa." laughs> I have to say, I I remember, or at least I had remembered the a close up of it, and there isn't one, which surprised me. It's all in it is all in the audio. There are sound effects, and they're gross. Yes. And uh, and then yeah. Um, I remember uh, Velma flicks it away. Sorry, with her. There is a close-up of the blemish uh, yes. outside when she gets out of the car, but and shows it and and complains about it to Link. But then we see yeah. like the popping is off screen, sort of. I mean, it's just obscured from us, but it sounds gross and wet. And then there's a little moment where Velma flicks her glove, and it just there's another splat noise as it goes wherever it goes, <laughs> and it's just like that's actually worse. I think that's even that's considerably worse. It is. <laughs> The audio is is horrifying. Um, <laughs> I remember reading something about how he really liked to make people like super uncomfortable. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> and that they would they would talk about it. They would feel uncomfortable, and then he had, it was like um, he was a good taste terrorist or something. <laughs> <laughs> he called himself something like that. I can see that he's just. He is this remarkable contradiction, right? Because it's like David Lynch, maybe, or Cronenberg, they get the worst of it out in the cinema that they make. And then they just wow. get to be nice, reasonable people when you meet them. And they're cheerful <laughs> and, you know, like dryly funny. And yeah. they're just, they're just able to channel something. I mean, there is, John Waters is a gay man who grew up in the fifties and sixties. Like he has anger. He has things to be upset about. He no kidding. Yeah. Saw awful things happening, uh, experienced loss and pain. And yet he's built the life for himself where he gets to do whatever he wants. He can make the art that he wants to make. He doesn't have yeah. to, you know, worry about studio demands or anything at this point, he's celebrated basically wherever he goes. Yeah. And he's come through in a way that, like this is a film about like, this film has police beating black people who just want to come to a dance and still yeah. it's not like it's angry but it's not angry in a way that pushes the audience away or or this sounds it sounds like i'm trying to say that it's okay that these things happen but no. he's, he's found a way to make the film optimistic and cheerful and and 
open-hearted yeah even as these awful things are happening within it i mean there's fat yeah. shaming and there's there's cruelty and there's emotional abuse from uh, on performed on amber like right there on camera we're seeing all of these things yeah. and somehow the film you take away afterwards you it's just it's everything's going to be okay and these these people will learn and they're the ones who are, are thriving are the ones who already know that it's just better to be happy and and treat yeah. people well than it is to try to keep them away i really felt a I did, didn't remember this from my initial watching of the film, but I, I felt this real bond with uh, Corny. <laughs> he just seemed like, oh, he's such a good guy, right? Like does all his, um, his, his expressions were so, he conveyed so much understanding and so much that he wanted to say to, you know, it's like, it was so clear that he wanted to integrate the show and, yeah that he was getting pressure from the, from the studio and just his, the way he looked at Tracy, that's like, they, you know, it's like, you're amazing, Corny. <laughs> like, I love this kid. Right. It was, it was really uh, just such a, a sort of a beautiful, ordinary dude, you know, that um, you really rooted for. Um, and I just, I don't remember really noticing him the first time I saw the movie, but, um, yeah, he just kind of spoke to me this time. <laughs> yeah. He's doing the moral work in the background. It's just, you know, that's out of line, Amber, but you know, in a really almost real creamy kind of way where yeah. to see him is to expect him to be on the wrong side. Right. Because he's, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's it. Exactly. You don't expect that from him. Yeah, he's selling a certain kind of smarmy whiteness, I guess, that, yeah. that fits right in. But it's, I guess, once again, we have, you know, the, the subversion of he's a Canadian. Like, that's Sean Thompson, and he's going to mess with stuff. <laughs> yeah. I remember that was the biggest deal at the time, too. Like, Thompson was on every newspaper's uh, entertainment section because he he had a role in the John Waters hit. And, of course, that's what we do here, right? Like, celebrate the local. But he's right. just... He's just perfect for this role and he is like kind of the Troy Donahue archetype that that yeah. that Waters himself played with in in movies like Polyester and some of his his earlier films where he's just using and Link too this is Michael St. Gerard who played Elvis twice already I think before the movie oh so Elvis yeah he's just he's just messing with the archetypal structure of yeah. American pop and then somehow also Josh Charles is there which I know I forgot completely <laughs> That's Will. <laughs> it's, he's he's in the Good Wife. He's a he's a grown ass man. What's he yeah. doing? <laughs> I know it's so funny. Just once I realized, I'm like, who's that? Oh, <laughs> oh my god. That's yeah. That was fun to see him so squeaky clean and young. Young and surprisingly limber i don't know that he's been that physical in anything else he's ever been cast yeah. in. it's kind of fun to watch now it was he's quite the dancer who knew <laughs> yeah and like the next year he's in dead poet society and then the career just takes off but yeah he's just oh, yeah. a guy bonking around in a baltimore dance picture yeah it's it's pretty pretty incredible uh i read i 
read, I was reading about divine because I was thinking, I was wondering, like they call divine a drag queen, transvestite, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, and then, so I was reading, um, an, uh, an article about him. He was interviewed by Terry Gross, I think. And he said, you know, I'm just a character actor. <laughs> I don't identify as a woman. I'm a character actor. And, um, uh, he said that, uh, when he was on set, when he was between takes, um, women in the neighborhood they were shooting in, they just thought he was another, another woman. And he's like, what self-respecting drag queen would want to look like that? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's more like performance art, I guess, than, than a lifestyle yeah. for, for divine, <laughs> but it is such a strange, it, or, his work occupies such a strange place in Waters films because it's never perceived as caricature. Divine right. is always playing women. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're fully fleshed. I mean, they're often really monstrous because that's how Waters caricatures everybody, but yeah. it's not an extra stunt, right? Like it's not a special distinction within the world of the film that a man is playing the female role. It's just, Oh yeah, of course it's divine. John Waters is always working with divine. Yes. And he is just, he just embodies, you know, th those characters and embodies also, I forget the name, his name in the, as the station manager. Arvin Hodgepile, which is an amazing <laughs> name. Arvin Hodgepile. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, th this is, it's something that, that Waters has always done. He just has these incredible alliterative names. Uh, for his for his principles, Tracy Turnblad, Prudence Pingleton, uh, <laughs> Velma von Tussle. You can sort of tell which which characters are the ones he started from and then built their families around them. But there's also Seaweed Stubbs, which is Muttermouth Mabel's son, which is a double, which is just, again, John Waters having the best time. Courtney Collins, yeah. of course. <laughs> uh, and then you have the people he really hates, like Arvin Hodgepile, where, you know. Arvin Hodgepile. That's nominative determinism, they call it. <laughs> But it is like, and, and you're experiencing all of this in a world where that's okay, like where people have weird names and nobody blinks because that's just where this is. And it's, you know, it's brightly lit and candy colored and it looks like the 60s through the eyes of the 80s. There's just little hints here and there that you're seeing something that never really existed, but more like a fantastical best version of all of it, which yeah. probably excuses the, the scene where the cops beat the characters. Um, <laughs> but it's just... It's just so open and warm-hearted. And then I find out that the cinematographer went on to work on The Wire, which... What? Yeah. I that. Yeah. Oh, I, yes. I have only just learned this, but it is bizarre. That is so opposites. Yeah. <laughs> the gritty, somber color. Wow. Yeah, I have, I'm just looking for the name. Yeah, David Inslee, who just worked on that shoot. I, obviously, just somebody who lived in Baltimore and kept working. But oh, amazing. That's, I think, the only connection between the two. Maybe some locations are the same, but it is just so bizarre <laughs> to imagine that, you know, like, what, 10 years later, they'll scout these places and, and, and paint them as an urban hell when, yeah. when, when we've just seen how lovely and warm and wonderful it is. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. What then, range? 
Yeah. And the it's cinematographer has. <laughs> yeah. And the city too, that it can be both. I mean, I suppose that's part of the sadness of it all. But but this is like the last gasp of a lot of things and and horribly also Divine's last picture because he I died know. just three weeks after its release, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the last times that Waters saw Divine was at the um, opening in New York. It's it's so sad. Yeah. Uh, incredibly tragic. Yeah, he was 40 years old, Divine. Which is also bizarre because somehow you can't imagine Divine ever not being either 30 or 60, like, <laughs> depending on the role. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. That was very sad um, that he didn't, you know, that was his sort of the pinnacle of Divine's success mm -hmm. and then over. Yeah, his first real hit. I mean, Lust in the Dust didn't set the world on fire, although it's a cult iconic thing right. now. Um, and I, yeah, he had, I'm just, I'm, I've glanced at the Wikipedia page and I'm pulled in by this. Oh, that's right. He had chart hits. <laughs> songs like you think you're a man and i'm so beautiful that actually did chart i'd forgotten <laughs> about those it was just the disco years you could do that <laughs> and a pink flamingo was was a big huge cult hit yeah yeah i mean they worked they've been working together since the mid 60s and and they met like, in high school yeah yeah which again you have to wonder what in baltimore was going on that that these like these two specific weirdos would find each other and, <laughs> and collaborate. What are the odds of what would have happened if they hadn't met? Would they have gone on to completely ordinary lives and just, yeah. did, they, did they inspire each other? It's, it's, it's just, you know, from, from what I've read, it sounds like, um, what is so waters dubbed divine or Harris Glenn Milstead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He dumped him divine. He probably just like, you were divine, you know? And I then can see that. Um, it almost feels like, I mean, I believe they were both bullied as one is when they're, you know, in, a, in that kind of society, you know, at that time. And it's, you know, still going on. I mean, I had it, I, I had some in my, in Stupid for You, you know, the scene with the white supremacist guy, um, the, the Holocaust denier, that was actually something that happened to my son, oh. well, Mikhail, as you know, um, when we shot the film, um, Mikhail was Mika <laughs> and transitioned while we were uh, shooting. So when, when he was in high school, he was at an art school where it's very, very liberal, obviously very inclusive and you can be who you want. And, and that was one of the reasons like I didn't, it didn't make it a coming out story because it was, you know, like, Oh, you're, you know, you're gay at an art school. No one's like, Oh my gosh, have you told your mom? <laughs> um, <laughs> but there was one boy and in Mikhail's class who was a Holocaust denier and they had a big tussle about it. And, um, and that became a scene in the film, like just his stories of, from high school became scenes in the movie. And it's just like, well, this is happening now, like in a way, um, you know, we're kind of revisiting that uh, like, People who people are who are like that are, are kind of emboldened oh, because yeah. of 
in, you know, in, in modern times, this is really sad, but um, yeah. So it makes, makes hairspray fairly relevant still, you know? Um, yeah. Who would have thought we'd be fighting the same battles? I, I mean, I suppose that's inevitable really with human nature. You, you never really, you, it's like you would have thought polio was eradicated uh, <laughs> right around the same time as Nazis. And yet they're both back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nice analogy. Um, it's terribly unfair. Yeah. Because human beings are doomed to repeat our stupid mistake. Yeah. No doomed full stop. I think at this point, but you know, if if you're lucky, you can watch a movie like hairspray or a movie like stupid, like uh, stupid for you and just think, Oh, maybe not. (laughs) We might be okay. Maybe it's going to be okay. Yeah. For 90 minutes, I can believe something <laughs> more positive is happening in the world. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you got the, the positive vibes from uh, Stupid For You because, yeah, we really wanted to make it, um, like, take you out of all this pain and, you know, well, music helps with that as well. Yeah. Sure. It's hard to make a downbeat musical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even the punk songs are, they're about hope in their own way. Yes, they are. <laughs> I love that. I mean, there's two kinds of punk. There's the burn it all down and the, I want things to be better, so let's burn the current things down. And they're still, you know, like, I, I always go for the optimism. I love the Sex Pistols, but the Clash definitely had more going on for me. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Clash girl. <laughs> Clearly, well, obviously, you could uh, get that vibe from theoretically sentient and a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm learning to play London Calling on my ukulele, my electric ukulele now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Let me know when you're playing. I'll be when the first performance is. I'll be there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, the punk ukulele. You don't think of those things together, but it can happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need to be able to smash it quickly um, yeah. I guess on stage yeah. it would be less impressive than a guitar but still <laughs> yeah my uh co one of my co-composers on on the songs on the film the, the one who I wrote uh theoretically sentient with uh TC folk punk slash Tim Cameron he's my ukulele teacher so he's teaching me all the punk songs and uh it's quite fun we're getting ready to write write some new ones Oh, that's cool. For another film or just for a performance? Uh, hopefully another film. I mean, I feel like there needs to be um, a third one. I'll have my, my, you know, Waters had his trash trilogy. Right, yeah. Have my, I don't know what I'd call it, the End Times trilogy. <laughs> my first movie was, you know, kind of the enviro- environmental angst musical um it's definitely not as feel good as stupid for you although it's you know it's pretty upbeat too uh but there is that sort of modern modern day the atrophying world and you know just trying to give trying to get you know a a parent trying to give their kid hope and you know in in the sixth extinction it's kind of I guess my, my thesis. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty grim reality, isn't it? But uh, 
we can only ever do what we can for the people. Like it's so it's been so weird sort of coping with this. This is about to get very, very dark, but just the whole, the, the whole fact that everything around us is either on fire or dying and we have to continue to be responsible for the people around us, right? Like that's all there is. It's it's like the, the pollution arguments that have suddenly collapsed. It's not that we're not recycling enough. It's that corporations have been failing to do anything on their side for so long that the individual can hardly have any impact at all. So you just have to keep doing what you can when you can do it. And it, and it's really hard to explain that to a, an incredibly intelligent teenager and give them, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. You have, you know, try to try to be positive. And it's like, well, you know, like Mikhail's always saying things like, well, well, I'll probably only be here till I'm 40. So what does it really matter? <laughs> Things like that. And it's just like, I don't really know what to say to that. Because <laughs> I can't say, oh, don't be such a downer. Come on, honey. Things are okay. Yeah, things aren't great. Um, <laughs> individual action. Maybe it won't amount to anything, but we still have to do it, right? Right. It's worse if you don't try. Yeah, it's worse if you don't try and you just go, oh, you know, screw it. But yeah, it's just, I I can't imagine being, you know, in, in my teens now and, and just like what what we've left for them. Yeah, the stuff we know? see coming. Uh, yeah. it's, um, I mean, you can also start them on Mad Max movies early. <laughs> yeah. And figure crossbow skills and... <laughs> Being yeah. able to recognize a threat. That's those are the, the building that's, blocks of our new future. <laughs> that's a very good idea. We should start growing our own food. Get the get the cold frame ready. High ground. Find high ground. Collect this is, water. This got depressing real fast. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my fault. I pushed it. But uh, but the movies are positive, so there's that. There's <laughs> we can, that. We'll cling to that. Take we'll cling to that. Take a break from the brutal reality and, you know, have a 83 minutes of good times. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Jude Klassen, whose new movie, Stupid For You, is available today on digital and on demand. It's a sweet, weird little picture. John Waters would love it. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Jude on Twitter at JudeCast, J-U-D-E-C-A-S-T, all one word. And you can find Hairspray on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also streaming in the U.S. on HBO Max and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms in the U.S. and Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.